there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Spike Cohen, not yet vice president, but maybe one day he did run for vice president this year, 2020, on the Libertarian Party. He and his running mate, Joe Jorgensen, who's also been on this podcast, uh, they got a million and a half votes or so. And... Spike, once again, comes on the podcast to explain what a libertarian is and what would he have done if he got into office and what's going on on the planet right now. Always enlightening and always, I always learn something new. The last time Spike came on, I had my kids listen to the podcast. Here he is again to answer all my questions. Spike, last time you were on, you were a little-known vice presidential nominee for the Libertarian Party. You got on all 50 ballots. How many votes did you get in the election? Uh, we got one point, actually just just over 1.7 million votes, which translated to 1.2% of the vote, 
which I'm told is the second best showing we've ever had. I'm also told that this was our first run uh, and that, you know, Gary Johnson's first run was also during a, um, during a, uh, a year where an incumbent was running for reelection and there was a record vote high at that time and that, uh, you know, he only got 1% and uh, that, you know, once you factor in things like COVID and the media blackout that happened this year, which is true, the media completely tried to ignore us this year. Uh, and the fact that we weren't, you know, sitting with previous uh, elected officials that we actually did a really great job. Everyone who's watching now, raise your hands at home if you're satisfied with that. Well, you are right. Because you're a candidate for national office, I have to fact check you on everything. Because, you know, I never know if you're going to be like those other guys or gals. We just start making stuff up. Yeah. Like, we got 17 million votes. No, no, we got we got 1.7. Spike Cohen claims they won the election. And <laughs> the fraud recount will jokingly that. claims that we won the election. Yeah. So, okay. In 2016, of course, the combination of Gary Johnson and, and Bill Weld was like, a dream ticket for the libertarians just in terms of vote getting because in terms of vote getting compar comparatively and also again that you know it was during a year when so supposedly and i haven't done the full due diligence i've only looked past the last two or three election cycles but for third parties or non-republicrats as i call them when it is an incumbent re-election year when an incumbent is running the third parties typically don't do as well because the side that has their incumbent in place is fighting to keep them in and the other side is fighting to get rid of them. So it becomes a lot more contentious. As I said, that's not satisfying to me. We learned a lot of lessons about what we need to do moving forward. We learned that our grassroots campaigning was absolutely necessary moving forward. Uh, the bus tour that we did, traveling to uh, a total of, between the two of us, we traveled to 47 states. I myself traveled to 35. Joe traveled to pretty much about that same number. You know, that stuff was crucial because it got us what little media we did get. Uh, and it also got the grassroots activists excited. We learned a lot of good stuff about that. We learned that advertising on streaming services is a lot more cost effective than advertising specific TV media markets. Is that because of analytics? Like you could track, you know, who's signing up for your email list, who's you know, you cookie them up, you learn more data about what magazines they read, what news sources they read and so on. Specifically, the streaming services is that we can literally just blanket. We can just do. We can do targeted advertising, yes, but it also isn't as competitive. Like it just the pricing isn't as high to begin with. It's actually like a fraction of what it costs to advertise on TV. Like to reach that same number of people, you'd have to advertise in multiple swing state media markets as well as other media markets that are a lot less, and you would be spending exponentially more. So there's a lot of lessons that we learned. I think the biggest lesson that we learned is that we need to grow the party and the movement, or we're going to keep talking about factors that have nothing to do with our run that decide whether we get 1% or 3% and whether we are able to keep ballot access, which let's be clear, James, if we lose every time, ballot access becomes little more than a Pyrrhic victory. So in my mind, what I learned from this and, and what I think libertarians who want to start a culture of winning in this party and this movement have learned is that we have to work to massively grow this party and this movement, take our message directly to the American people after the election, the year after the election, during the midterms, during the off years, not just show up during the election cycles, but also do the heavy, heavy groundwork at the local and regional levels as well at the grassroots and grow our party as a grassroots movement. There's a lot there. And it's so interesting because 
You did get on all 50 ballots. You you were, let's call it, the most legit third party out there this Absolutely. year and, and in 2016. I don't know about it every year. You know, every now and then there's a, a Ross Perot or a John Anderson yep. or whoever. First off, congratulations. I saw some of the, the videos of some of your uh, bus tour stops. It looked great. It looked like people were really responsive. Mm -hmm. You were very funny throughout all of them. And, and you have a future, young man. So oh, thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. So now the, the big question is, though, you got on all 50 states. I'm curious, how much did you guys spend all together? Because just to put it in perspective, like, you know, Donald Trump and Biden raised about a billion each. And then Bloomberg raised another billion on top of that. We raised just over $3 million and spent just under $3 million. And our price per vote that we spent was, oh, I'm trying to, someone told me this, this. It was less than $2 a vote that we spent. And who, this is an odd question, but this is this range of questions you probably get all the time. Who donates, like I, I might, somebody might donate, like Philip Morris, the tobacco company, might donate to Biden because of reasons we can all suspect. They want some influence. Yeah, if, if assuming if Biden wins or if Trump wins, whatever, who donates money to you? <laughs> Mostly, uh, almost, pretty much all of our money get comes from small donors. Uh, we have had in previous cycles where there was corporate funding, but even that was my, minor, and it was mostly like small and medium sized business funding. We don't, we don't get the. You know, it's funny people that say that we get the big Coke money from the Coke brothers. We haven't gotten money from them since David Coke ran as our presidential nominee. Uh, no, 1970s, uh, 1980 vice presidential nominee. Vice presidential nominee. That was the I, last time. I, I interviewed him then. Involved. Yeah, that was the the last time there was. Oh, okay. So, so then you know that was the last time there was any Coke money involved. We 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 don't get crony corporate funding, and for a very important reason, we wouldn't accept it. They'd never give it to us because once our once we get into office and once our policies come into office, the crony system that, that you know, these multinational, multi-billion dollar corporations have built uh, to set up a, a taxpayer-funded gravy train and trough for them, that's all over. We, that, that necessarily ends when libertarian policies come into place. The other thing that we aren't getting and we wouldn't want is the taxpayer funding of campaigns, the federal matching funds, hundreds of millions of dollars that go to Republicans and Democrats in every single election cycle. We don't want that either. When we get in, into power, we dismantle that stuff because you shouldn't be robbed to pay for people's political campaigns. So, so how much does it cost, though, to get on every ballot? Like you have to collect millions of signatures. So it is, I believe that the estimate in terms of cost is in the, is in a few million and, and, it, and it varies wildly what the estimate is because the bigger estimate is how many immeasurable number of hours it takes for people to do the ballot access signing, to do the petitioning, to do the, uh, you know, to do the legwork in some of these states that require to get on the ballot. Our job became harder for this next cycle. And I'm going to work very hard to do whatever I can to help because we lost ballot access in Ohio and New York that we were able to get from getting a higher vote total at the presidential level. This time around, it's going to be harder. We're going to have to go the petition route and the petition stakes for those states are very, very high. Tens of thousands of signatures that we need to get. So, you know, I will be helping with that. But, you know, this wasn't this wasn't a good showing. I, there were many people saying it was a good showing and and considering all the factors, but I think that they're not seeing the forest for the trees. 
we need to no longer be fighting for ballot access. We need to grow this movement to a point where that's not even a concern, that our concern is actually contending, trying to win, trying to get in second place, trying to get, you know, seeing how many senators and governors and congresspeople and, and you know, not to mention the local and state and regional races that we do often win, have those as well, but also be winning at that same level at the higher level. And that just requires getting our message out there in a massive way. So, Spike, I want to get into the election and the, the future of the party and, and some aspects of that. But just really quickly summarizing so for, for the listeners who, you know, again, I feel like always there's some buffer where you have to explain why the libertarians are not the crazy party. And I don't say that because I think it, but everybody says, oh, aren't they that crazy party? Mm-hmm. So, so, so like, but, but we've spoken before, I know, and I've spoken to Joe, I, I, I know the issues. But just to summarize, what would you guys do day one? Let's say you were president. What would you guys do on day one? Just to kind of give a summary of the, the feel for it. The top things that libertarians would do on day one, if you're talking about getting, are you saying getting into all levers of power or just in the presidency? Just say in the presidency. Okay, so in the presidency, obviously we would deal with the gridlock of Republicrats in in Congress not wanting to work with us, at least not initially. So what we can do is undo a lot of the bad things that have happened at the executive level. So for example, ending the war on drugs by descheduling the drugs, begin the process of pardoning people for you know nonviolent and non-theft related victimless crimes like drug offenses so that they can get back, so that they can get out of jail. They don't have that felony record. They can get back on their feet. Doing that greatly disempowers the criminal cartels and the corrupt government officials who have made a fortune off of the war on drugs. So when people see the immediate good that happens as a result of that, they'll see how libertarian policies can help them. Another thing we could do on day one is declare an end to the wars. There was no congressional declaration of war, which means that it is completely in the president's hand to decide whether or not these wars continue. Begin the process of ending those wars, bringing the troops home so that people can see the benefit of that and the fact that there isn't this boogeyman that we have to constantly be fighting. The boogeyman is us, our government rather. And then I think, you know, another good example of that is going through, you know, bit by bit, going through all of the executive orders and regulations that have been put in place over the past several decades, things that should have been done by Congress, but were instead handed off as a power to the executive branch. And any single thing there that isn't explicitly there to protect the lives and properties and and rights of the American people Anything else goes because that's not what the government should be doing, and it's making things worse. These are the regulations that drive up the cost of doing business in America. They drive up the cost of hiring Americans. They drive up the cost of living. They drive up the cost of making things here, and it just leads to bad economic results uh, and cronyism as a result. So a couple quick questions on those. Let's say you decriminalize uh, all drugs and and pardon anybody in in jail for drug-related offenses. Is there a danger that some drugs would get out of control, like the opiate you know, crisis and so on? That's what's happening right now. And it's happening because of the war on drugs. I, every single, I, I've talked to close to 20,000 people uh, in person during this time of campaigning in the last year. And I talked to many people who either are suffering from addiction or were suffering from addiction. I myself have been clean for 14 years. And what I heard, especially from those, and mine wasn't an opiate addiction, but I talked to many others who did suffer from opiate addictions, both in the past and the present. And here's what I heard over and over again. I had a chronic pain issue. I wasn't able to use cannabis. I wasn't able to be allowed to continue staying on my legal opiate once I reached my federally defined limit and I had to turn to street drugs in order to be able to deal with my chronic pain issue. So this is because of the war on drugs. 
the other reason why opiates have become the, the, the favored drug right now is because they're super cheap, because the U.S. military is protecting poppy fields in Afghanistan and other countries where they're being grown. That's their best way of fighting against radical Islamist organizations in those countries is by helping the drug dealers and then helping funnel the drugs into the U.S. so that they become nice and rich. That is why drugs are so cheap here. And that is why Americans aren't able to seek out other options is precisely because of the war on drugs. In terms of like pulling out of the other countries, is this something that Trump has already started? Would you say Trump was, let's say, less interested in wars than prior presidents? Because I, I got mixed messages on that. And see, well, the mixed messages came from him. So it depended on what day he, he, he was talking. Some days he was talking about reconciliation and peace. And other days he was talking about what country he was going to, you know, turn into glass or, or, you know, bomb into the Stone Age or, as he put it, uh, bomb the, I don't know if he lost swearing on here, but bomb the redact. We everything. Okay, yeah, he said he was going to bomb the shit out of a couple countries a few times. But the proof's in the pudding. There are more troops overseas now than there were when Trump got into office. He did a lot of surges. He would do surges of troops. And then he would say, look, I'm bringing all the troops back. No, you're bringing some of the troops that you surged back. Uh, so in the same way that government will increase funding for something, and then when they try to reduce it at all, they say, look, this is a big cut in government spending. No, you just cut what your increase was. Uh, the same thing with the troop levels. Um, he did not start any new wars, but he did continue and escalate all the existing ones, including the U.S. government-sponsored genocide that's uh, currently undergoing in Yemen. So from that standpoint, he was every bit as much of a warmonger as the, as the people he replaced. And, and uh, I'm certain that the uh, you know, Biden-Harris administration is going to continue that proud Republicrat tradition of bombing people around the world and, and starting genocides. Well, why? What's the, what, what's the benefit? Like, what is the, what is the reason they're doing it? Like, do, do you think America still feels the need to be the world's police? Or is there a sense that if we don't keep them in their countries— They'll invade here. Those are the reasons they tell us. Mm. The reasons they're actually doing it are the profit for the cronies, the uh, military contractors, the uh, energy contractors, the central banks, uh, foreign dictators that they have cozy relationships with to keep with their various political strategies and so forth. But the other big part of it is that by keeping these wars going, by keeping this specter that there's this boogeyman, this evil that we have to fight against, it allows them to continue using that the same way they use the war on drugs in a similar way to justify their further encroachments on our lives and rights and property. It's what allows them to set up uh, warrantless surveillance of every single electronic communication that we do. Uh, we can thank Edward Snowden for telling us about that. They denied it for years, and it, had, it came out and turns out every single email that we put out, every single phone call, text message, this, I'm sure Zoom calls, anything on Facebook, anything you do is being logged somewhere and, and kept for, for future reference at some other point. Uh, all of that exists because of the war on terror and the war on drugs. And it's not a coincidence that we keep finding out that every new terror organization, a few years later, we find out that it was the U.S. government that was arming and funding and, and bankrolling and training these groups in the similar way that they are uh, uh, sponsoring the uh, drug cartels in the other countries. They need this boogeyman both to enrich themselves and their cronies and to keep us scared of the boogeyman so that, that we allow them to infringe upon us further. You know, this idea of keeping them scared seemed to occur a lot during this election. Like, oh, yeah, there was basically no on either side or any side. There was no media to trust. And then even all the social media platforms, it was it was sort of like they took their gloves off and finally admitted this is who we really are. 
We're not going to hold back this time. Yep. Like, what, what do you think of this issue? And it's, it's a relatively new one because of this election of all of these digital platforms censoring and banning some people and not others. Well, I think it's a it's what happens when you have so much regulation in that market that there's only a small handful of competitors that can actually afford to be the viable major social media networks. That that is the problem. So the analogy I use is this. If you came to my house and you're wearing a shirt that has a message on it that I find offensive and I say, hey, listen, I don't like that shirt. I, I find it offensive. If you want to stay here at my house, you either have to take it off or put on another shirt or or you'll have to go. There's nothing wrong with that. It's my property. I can decide what I want to do. But if I've effectively made it so that myself and three or four other people who agree with me own all of the property anywhere on the country, and we're telling you those same rules, we've effectively censored you. That is the problem. The problem isn't that Facebook is deciding what its terms of service is. The problem is that you have a small handful of big tech companies that have completely cost-ridden out the rest of their competitors. They have driven up the cost of a barrier to entry through all the various regulations at the, at mostly at the federal level, but also at some state levels as well for the ISPs, for the providers, for the uh, social media networks, that it's effectively impossible for any new platform to come up. And if a new platform comes up, they just smear them as foreign saboteurs and force them to sell themselves to an American company like they did to TikTok. So, uh, do you think though, like, do you think Twitter should or Facebook should allow the same type of freedom of speech that the government is forced to do? Like, is this a right even with a private company? No, I think that the answer again is to just deregulate so much so that when they make a decision that an increasing number of Americans say, I don't like this, this is too infringing on me. And for that matter, I don't like the fact that you collect all of my data and sell it to advertisers and everything else. There are other viable platforms to go to that are able to have the same, you know, we're seeing this right now. People are, it's a relative handful of people are leaving Facebook for things like Parler and MeWe. And all of those are crashing because they don't have the wherewithal to be able to scale that up into a, into a larger social media network. And without fail, if and when one of those social media networks does rise to a certain level to be able to serve that, here comes the U.S. government with a bunch of baseless allegations against them and, and, and lawsuits and everything else to basically effectively put them out of business or force them to use the exact same practices that these social media uh, companies are doing, so that, that these existing social media companies are doing. So it, it isn't to force, the answer is not to get the government involved in telling social media companies specifically what they can and cannot allow, which I guarantee you will be far worse. And it's actually, it's the, the, the briar patch that they're asking not to be thrown into right now. Social media companies would love nothing more than the government to step in and go, uh, we're going to tell you what, exi what, what exactly you are or are not allowed to do because we're going to treat you as a utility now. Because if they do that, then that cements those companies as effectively the only social media companies to have any real wherewithal in the social media theater out there. What if deregulation, though, at this point is not enough to to reduce the barriers of entry? Like the, these guys already are cemented in just by like Facebook's already got billions of users. So mm -hmm. it's it's hard for billions of users to, to switch, you know, after 10 years, 15 years of using the, the platform. Like, could this be dangerous in that there's some oligopoly that can't really be either regulated away or remove the reg regulations on? Yeah. So that's the thing. The regulations are what allow them to be that. That's what allows them to be that oligopoly. That's what allows that, right? So 
it is those regulations that keep everyone else at bay. When you get rid of those barriers to entry, here come the competitors. Even in the midst of this regulatory environment, you still had TikTok rise up out of nowhere. What happened? The government stepped in and said, nope, you're a, a Chinese uh, 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 foreign saboteur. They had no proof of this. All of the data that we knew, all the information we knew about it suggested that they weren't. Uh, for example, the fact that they were the preferred social media platform of Hong Kong protesters and yellow vest protesters and an increasing number of American protesters as well, which means there's no reason to think that the government, it, it, Chinese or otherwise, is spying on anyone when it's showing that it's being successfully used by those, or, by those protesters. And yet they made the accusation. It was enough to scare people. And it was enough for them to use it as an excuse to say, uh, we're going to protect the American people unless... We're going to protect the American people and not allow uh, uh, Americans to use this unless they sell to an American company. Same directors, same terms of service, same server locations, same everything except now it's owned by Oracle. So the answer is the opposite of that. The answer is get rid of the regulations that make it so hard for new uh, social media companies to come into place in the first place and don't have the government step in when those new competitors come in and basically you know, bully them into you know, going with the status quo. That breaks the status quo. That breaks this cartel on social media that we have. If you go the other way and you have the government step in and start telling them what they can and can't do and cement them as utilities, then you can guarantee that you're never going to be able to replace the Facebook or the Twitter or the main uh, players in it. You'll cement them as essentially government-managed utilities. And here comes the real censorship when that happens. So so with all these policies, where's the line? Like, let's, let's take gun control as an example. Okay, mm-hmm. it's the Second Amendment. People have the right to their property. People have yep. the right to, to own guns. Mm-hmm. Where's the line? Like, okay, I'm 45 years old and I've used guns all my life. Okay, I could use a gun. But I'm... 18, I'm 17, I'm four. Is there a line at any point with with this stuff? And how do you, given that, you know, part of the idea of the philosophy is I find it to be very, it's almost like a shortcut for making decisions about each issue. Does it get in the way of me owning property and my freedom to own property? Then we're against it. But there's always a line, like guns is a a good case study for that. Yeah, so we know that uh, government officials are something like eight times more likely to commit a homicide with their gun than private gun owners. So I think the conversation needs to be shifted. Common sense gun control is the American people armed with whatever they damn well please, because that's the law, uh, deciding what we allow government to own. It is government that does the killing. It is government that creates policies that create widespread poverty and inequality that leads to unrest that leads to more killings. It's government that drives up the cost of living that makes an increasing number of Americans have to resort to crime just to be able to make ends meet. This is where the problem is. Uh, The problem is not you or I having a gun. And and we see that every single day. I live in South Carolina, which is where the uh, Mother Emanuel Church shooting happened back in 2015. Dylan Roof walks into a church and casually murders like, what, 13, 11 people, 13 people, and walks out. The reason he did that was because he wanted to start a race war, and he thought that if he killed a bunch of black people in a prominent black church in the Deep South, that that would lead to a race war. Thankfully, it didn't. But the reason he was able to do that is because that church didn't allow guns in the church. We see in 20, what was it, 2019, last year, we saw a uh, uh, the opposite of that, where a mass shooter tried to go into a church in uh, in Texas and start a mass shooting. Uh, he was able to shoot one person and the rest of the parishioners turned around and shot him. Gun control is the difference between a mass shooting and getting mass shot. This is how we deal with this, is by getting rid of the 
fish-in-a-barrel zones that we have across this country, much less trying to make the entire country into a fish-in-a-barrel zone. The best way to stop mass shootings, the best way to stop violent crimes of murder, and we see this time and time again where the highest rates of these things are in the places where the general populace is less likely to have guns. The way to stop murder is to make it where the people that might commit murder, especially with a gun, know that it's going to be a lot harder for them to carry that out without them getting shot first. Even the mass shooters who have no problem dying want to run up the body count first. If they know that, that they're likely to get shot first, they're not going to be able to do it. The reason I'm asking about age restrictions is because let's say there is some age restriction in, in the in the ideal model here. How mm. do you then, it's not only what's the restriction and how do you draw that line, but also how do you then enforce with, with and this became an, a, a subject during this election with the whole yep. defunding the police and, and evidence of defunding leading to higher crime rates. Where's all the lines where we start to get into gray area? Well, I'd have to see the study that suggests that defunding the police leads to higher crime rates. Most most of the suggestions I saw was to turn the police department to first response ratio into something similar to what most suburban neighborhoods have. Uh, what we see in uh, urban neighborhoods is where there is this massive higher ratio of policing compared to like mental health services and uh, you know par- paramedic first response services and firefighters and so forth. Whereas in in you know uh, more uh, upper crust or, or higher higher income level and typically whiter suburban neighborhoods, the ratio was much more even between those. So defunding typically meant taking away from the, the policing service and, and giving to those other services as well. It, it was different from person to person. Our idea was just getting the federal government out of it and allowing the individual communities uh, to decide what they wanted their ratios to be, what they wanted their police departments to look like. But when it comes to you know the, you know know something like an age limit or something like that, I have met four and five-year-olds who have been learning gun safety since they were able to walk that I would trust with a firearm far more than I would someone my age who literally just got a concealed carry permit and is still waving the damn thing around everyone that they show it to. Uh, In my mind, it matters much more the person's level of familiarity with guns and gun safety. And I'll tell you something, James, the more someone is around guns, the more they respect them. The more they understand that this is not something to play around with, this is not something that's in a movie, this is something that is serious. So in my mind, it's more important that uh, gun safety is happening. And the way that you do that is you simply uh, allow the, the parent or guardian to be held liable if the child does something wrong with the gun, which incentivizes them, of course, to make sure that the child knows proper gun safety. That, to me, is far more important than setting an arbitrary age limit and putting people in cages over it. You know, assuming people are liable for whatever crime they commit, how do you how do the how do the municipalities keep local police officers funded? What do you do about revenues, taxes, stuff like that? Because I know in general it's uh, in favor of elimination of all taxes. So I again speaking at it as a federal issue, like if if we were to be elected, how would we handle it? We'd leave that up to the states and the communities to decide that. If you're asking me like libertarian praxis, how would this work? We support ideas of voluntary funding because we think that government is not some exempt, should be some exempt organization that where the rest of us aren't allowed to go around with a gun and force people to give us money as our business model. We don't believe government should be able to do that either. And we believe that because government does that, it allows them to not provide us with value. It allows them to not be good stewards of what they have because they can just take more whenever they want to. It it allows them to create the harmful and abusive and inequitable situations that we currently suffer under. If instead we had a voluntarily funded model, if instead they relied on direct fees for services and for the things that can't be funded that way, having something like a voluntary transaction fee on any transaction that involves money, you could have a, let's say, three or 5% tax or fee. And if you didn't want to pay that fee, 
you, nothing happened. There would be no punishment. You didn't pay the fee. But if something went screwy with that transaction and there was any kind of you know, arbitration needed, you couldn't use the courts. You wouldn't have any protection. By doing that, not only would government actually be providing value, not only would they be able to actually raise funds and revenues that's needed for, for you know, government services that people actually want but can't pay for directly, but it would also force them to provide more value than what the person is paying for, as opposed to what we have now, where we pay because we don't want to go to jail or have all of our property taken for us, but we know that we get far less value as a result of that. By taking the extortion model out of it and putting it in a value-based model where people can choose whether or not they want to fund it based on their perceived per, their perception of whether or not what they're paying is worth more than what they're getting, then it forces government to be smaller. It forces government to be more valuable. It forces government to be honest with their money. And it forces, it allows the people to be, not only is it morally correct in that no one's being robbed, but it actually works better because they're getting more value for their service. And like right now, what services do you think the government does need to pay for? Like, let's say you were in control of everything. I mean, my personal opinion is that all things are better handled by a free market than by a, a monopoly, and that includes government. But if we're not going the full anarchy route, if we are not going the full free market, you know, anarcho-capitalism route, I would say that at the very, the very least are the things where it's harder. Uh, and this is sort of the minarchist model, the the minimal government model. That there are certain services that are necessary to provide a civil uh, government, and that those services, by their nature, and I disagree with this, but by their nature, they're less conducive to working well with a, a competitively provided model like the courts, like police departments, like fire departments. I'd argue that that's not true, but I will make the concession that if that were the next step, that we have a, a, a voluntarily funded minimal government model where things like courts, like first response units, uh, like uh, the police like corrections, but corrections would look a lot different than they look now. The only people that would actually be in prison would be people who actually have demonstrated that they are a direct threat to the public, not just you did something bad, you go to jail. There are far better ways to rectify that person's crime and, and force them to make their victims whole and learn from their mistake, which actually allows them to, to then go and be a, a productive member of society and not and, and cost a fraction of the cost to people that are paying for it uh, that the current model does. But those are the types of things that would be, you know, typically funded. And, th and, and the, 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 model for a government that can truly say that it is of, by, and for the people is that it needs to be as local and decentralized as possible. So the, the services that you are getting need to be as, as, as local as possible so that you have as much of a direct say in what's happening as possible. They need to be funded voluntarily because if you're robbing someone, then you cannot say you have their consent. There is no consent of the government when there's a gun to someone's head. Um, that's a coercive model. And it needs to be providing value and, and people need to be able to opt out and find other options. But those are the, the basic models behind a minarchist libertarian government. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, 
I always realized, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi, it's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. So, okay, this election, like these are all great ideas. Right. Oh, let's have They mean wars, nothing when we no get 1.2%. Yeah. What so so what happens at the political level? Like for instance, on election night, mm-hmm. obviously you didn't think to yourself, "Oh, we lost. This is horrible." Like you kind of knew the, how the night would end up, roughly, yes. give or take. So what do you what are you <laughs> thinking about on election night? Like you're probably just watching it, like the rest of us, wondering who was going to win. Well, so I was actually at an election night party. And I was already talking with people about the next step because yes, we we the the likelihood of us winning was let's say fairly low. So we were not expecting to look up and see projected winner Joe Jorgensen. 
But we, I, I will say, we were, I was, at least I was disappointed. Most of the Libertarian Party is not disappointed right now, or, or a good chunk of the Libertarian Party is not disappointed. They're saying, you know, this was overall a good showing, all the stuff that I said before, you know, that it was during an incumbent election year, you know, when you factor in the lockdowns and COVID-19 and the fact that, you know, because we couldn't do, you know, more in-person, you know, bigger event stuff, we had to limit our event sizes and things like that. And we had to limit where we could do them, you know, that that made it where, you know, the people who could just afford to, to flood the airwaves had even more of an advantage than they typically have. And, you know, uh, Joe and I weren't as well known prior to our getting the nomination. And when you factor all those things in, we actually did a darn good job. And all those things are true. But what I was thinking even before the election and what I was talking to people about at the election party and what I've been saying in live streams and interviews every day since then is that this is not enough. And it speaks to a culture of winning that we need to we need to nurture and, and cultivate within our party. We need to look at a result like this and say, never again are we going to settle for single digits. Never again are we going to settle for mostly relying on factors that have nothing to do with us or our party or our activism or our grassroots or our campaigning or our messaging or anything else. If the majority of things that we rely on to do well or not do well have to do with stuff that is completely out of our control, you know, uh, whether or not there's an incumbent, whether or not media is paying us enough attention, uh, whether or not there's a, you know, a pandemic or a lockdown, that if, if we have to rely on that, Republicans and Democrats weren't relying on that. They were relying on the strength of their of their ability as a party to be able to put their message out to the American people. We need to grow our and and I will say also this: our grassroots were more energized in this election cycle, which is why we did as well as we did than in any other election cycle. I went across this country from east to west, north to south, uh, everywhere. Pretty much the vast majority of states in the lower forty-eight. I, I was not able to go to Hawaii. I was supposed to go to Hawaii, by the way. But they then they did the quarantine thing and it wasn't going to work. But anyway, um, talking to Americans across the country, every single person I talked to who had been a part of this party for some for decades said, I've never seen as much excitement. It's why we were so surprised that we didn't do better than we'd ever done before, because what we kept hearing, not just it was anecdotally, but across the board, almost universally, was that they'd never seen this much excitement. This shows how much we need to grow the grassroots. Because we had the grassroots excitement, but we didn't get any kind of mainstream attention and it just didn't translate into votes. We need to grow the grassroots because that's where our future is. I mean, it, I'm wondering about two things. One is just in general, the, the I hate to call it the branding of the party because mm -hmm. it's not really about that. But again, like the first, if you say libertarian to someone, the average person on the street says, aren't those guys crazy? Now, maybe not as much as they used to, but there's yeah. still that feeling. And so is there, is there some branding thing that has to happen? The average person says the what? So I just, James, I just talked to tens of thousands of people and about half of them, roughly half of them were people who came out because I was at their park screaming into a, you know, screaming into a mic with our speakers going, they're like, what the hell is president? What is this? And they would come out and look, okay, we, we went to, we had an event in Oakland where the majority of people that were there, we were in this park surrounded by, you know, like apartments and stuff. And people were just coming out like, what is, this? you know, you've got a bus, you're running for president. Who are you? This is our biggest problem. Now it's also a good problem to have. If our only problem is that people haven't heard of us. And when they do hear of us, they go, well, damn, that makes, that sounds great. That makes perfect sense. If we present it the right way, that that is a good problem to have, but it is a problem. The vast majority of Americans have no clue who we are. They may have heard libertarian at some point. They may not have, but they don't really have a a a, a strong idea one way or the other.
are there somewhat more engaged voters who do have a bad take about us? Absolutely. Those also are the ones who typically are going to be all the way to the end holding their nose and voting Republican and Democrat because they want to vote for the lesser evil that they think is likely to win. It is far harder to message to them to explain to them, no, 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 they're both in on it. They're doing this, they're playing a good cop, bad cop routine so that you'll vote for the lesser evil and not vote for a better option. It's far easier to message to much more casual voters and non-voters, people who already have gone the, the, the length of recognizing that Republicans and Democrats are all garbage and they're not going to vote for either one of them because that's the hardest hurdle for us, right? I have so many people who say, oh, you know, uh, I would have voted for you, but I just had to stop Biden or I just had to stop Trump. And maybe next time, well, next time they're going to have their next person that they have to stop. Yeah, well, it's much easier to talk to the people that have already gone the length of recognizing that there's nothing good from the Republicans for them. Then we just have to explain why we're the people they should vote for. Yeah. So it seems like it's almost like a marketing thing that everybody does think like, like the, the quote you just said, someone says, I have to stop Biden, yep. or I have to stop. Why do they think their vote is going to stop someone from becoming president of the United States? It's like, so it seems like there's some scam marketing going on. It is. It is the, it is the scam, James. Donald Trump plays good cop to his base. More importantly, he plays bad cop to the other base. Joe Biden and those in his, in his you know, messaging and, and marketing group, you know, uh, the pundits and so forth, play good cop to their base. More importantly, they play bad cop to the other base. Because if you've got the good cop over here and the bad cop going this way, then everyone goes, man, these people suck, but I have to stop that one. I can't stand Joe Biden's record on criminal justice. And he's the reason that we're out here marching like so many of his policies are, are why we didn't. Kamala Harris was a terrible prosecutor, but we have to stop Trump. He's going to bring fascism. This will be our last election if we don't, don't get rid of Trump. And on this side, they go, man, Trump didn't really follow through on all that stuff he said he was going to do. But he makes those people over there cry and I hate them. And if they get into office, it's going to be a socialist communist takeover. And, you know, there's going to be war in our street. It's all nonsense. When you look at their actual policies, there's so little daylight between them. There's so little difference between this Republican in office and this Republican in office. You just see a constant expansion of the debt. You see a constant expansion of wars overseas. You see a constant expansion of the number of Americans in prison and with parole uh, record, parole and, and, and probation records, criminal records because of victimless crimes. You see an increase in the in the uh, just a steady and incremental increase in the uh, violations of our lives and our rights and our property and our money, a steady increase of the cost of living, which makes an increasing number of Americans unable to be able to afford just a basic cost of living without some form of government assistance. This is what happens when you vote Republican. And it's not going to change until we reject the good cop, bad cop narrative and recognize that they're all in on it together. And that the only way to stop it is to kick them all out of office and replace them with people who want to restore a balance between the government and the people it's supposed to serve. And the best way to do that is to first reach out to the people who already took the step of realizing that they're all a bunch of liars and schmucks and that we shouldn't be voting for them. The, the hard part, again, though, is that everybody thinks their vote actually is selecting the president of the United States. Right, like right, right, has, right, right. So, so it's like maybe, you know, for instance, in 2016, you guys had two former governors running. Do you think you need to go more in that? I mean, look, you and Joe were great and are, you know, right down the line, you're libertarians but maybe there's some injection of celebrity needed. No one knew who we were. I think, James, that the most important thing 
And this is my focus because I've already got people asking me, are you running for president in 2024? Are you, you know, please run for president in 2024 or please team up with Larry Sharp or Justin Amash or whatever and run for president, vice president, you know, please do that. And I keep telling them none of that matters if we're going to get 2% again or 1% or 3%. It doesn't matter. It matters. Hopefully we get more than 2% or 3% so that we can get ballot access. But other than that, it doesn't really matter because ultimately that ballot access doesn't matter if we don't win any elections. In my mind, the most important thing for the next four years and really just moving forward is growing the party, growing the movement, bringing people into the movement so that now who we put up for office actually has a chance of winning. Whether we put up a big libertarian celebrity, whether we put up a former elected official, whether we put up another you know, edgy podcaster who does, has a, has a great job of, of getting the grassroots excited, whatever we put up, whatever we put up, actually have them have a chance to win. That is going to be my singular focus moving forward is picking up the pieces of what we lost, the ballot access that we lost, but more importantly, looking past all that, looking past these third party questions that we ask ourselves that don't allow us to see the forest for the trees, that we need a culture of winning. So what I'm doing right now is I'm currently doing a series called Culture of Winning, where I'm interviewing the people who won their races across the country. So who won? You had like city council people uh, win? Yeah, we, we, we had just over a dozen wins, which sadly for us was actually a good showing during a during a, a, a incumbent re-election. We currently have uh, just over 250 elected libertarians. And we, we added, I think just over, I think it's around 15 now that we've added to their ranks. So, you know, and that's that's good, but compared to thousands of, of, of races that happened. But, but so we did have wins. We are going to focus on how they won, why they won. These were not flukes. These were people who had a, 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 a system in place that they used to be able to see lightning strike and be able to win their races. How did that happen? We're going to talk to people that got far higher vote percentages than anyone's ever gotten running for that race. Ricky Harrington, who ran for Senate in Arkansas. Uh, Donald Rainwater, who ran for governor in, uh, in Indiana. And talk to them about what their organizational structure was, what their strategy was, how they messaged to people. When we can end this, this culture of libertarians trying to fail well and start a culture of libertarians trying to win elections and say nothing short of winning is going to make me happy. If we do better than we've ever done before, great. We do better than we've ever done before, but I'm not satisfied until we win. When we change our mindset, that attracts people into it because there are a lot of people watching us talk about how well we're going to fail this year and they go, I'm not going to vote for that. I mean, I've talked to so many people who go, you're the first libertarian I've talked about that talks about winning. And I go, yeah, because I'm running for office. In my 20 plus years of business and activism, I've never gone into something with a, with a, with a, a mindset of, man, I'm going to see how well I can do bad at this and, and, and fail, right? So you have to have a mindset of winning. So that is my singular focus uh, for the next four years is just build the culture of winning by getting winnable races and by growing the party so that the number of those races that are winnable continues to grow until eventually we are a, a party that is contending for the White House. Well, what about also like taking politicians who are already, like a, take like a Rand Paul as an example. He's already a Republican senator. Yeah. But have have him cross list. So you know the way the way essentially AOC is a socialist but runs as a Democrat. Or, right. Right. Bernie right. Sanders actually is a socialist and runs as a Democrat. The problem is that, for example, Rand Paul, 
does far more for, and I hate to say this because Ron Paul is is the who brought me into libertarianism. And I said I had such high hopes for Rand. Ron, Rand Paul does more for damaging the brand of libertarianism by co-signing stuff that Donald Trump does and the Republicans do, and 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 trying to mass you know market it as being libertarian. He does more harm than good in that regard. And frankly, we don't have anything to offer him to. Uh, in exchange for him to be more involved with yeah. us. Why would he? It's why he's doing the stuff he did. He's a principal libertarian, but I think he's recognized that the only way he's going to get reelected, especially for something as high of an office as Senate, is to toe the GOP line. We have to change that reality. I know, I am certain that people like Rand Paul and Thomas Massey and many others would love to join a libertarian party and be much more libertarian than they are right now in the Republican and Democrat parties, but we have to grow into something that they actually don't lose their race as a result of it. Perfect example of this. Kalish Morrow uh, won her race for city council of Hanford. She has already converted the vice mayor of Hanford, who considered himself a libertarian but ran as a Republican so he wouldn't lose. He's now going to run as a libertarian from now on because he saw that you can win as a libertarian. They're working on yet another city council member who's going to be dropping any day now who also sees that they can now uh, run without, uh, without losing as libertarians. The way that we get elected officials in and get them in in a, in a way that actually benefits both of us is to grow ourselves into something where they can actually win and be more principled libertarians and be part of the libertarian brand at the same time. Everything goes back to we have to grow the message, we have to grow the movement, we have to grow the grassroots. Everything else is, a, is an attempt to end run around the, the stark and brutal reality that if enough people don't know about us and like us, we aren't going to go anywhere. And so, so now here we are like a week later from the election actually to the day what do you think is going to happen? I mean, there's all these lawsuits, there's allegations of voter fraud. What happens next? I think just my my understanding of, of how the vote totals are, I think the likelihood is that Joe Biden's going to win it, unless it's uncovered that there was, you know, massive overcounted votes or that, you know, there were there were votes that were unaccounted for or something. It would have to be a very dramatic. This is not Bush versus Gore where it all hinged on a, on, you know, a thousand right. or so, a few hundred votes in, 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 in one state. This is, you know, thousands or in some cases, tens of thousands of votes in multiple states. So I, the likelihood that, that this, you know, is upheld and that, that Biden ends up winning is pretty high. Now, with that said, we are currently looking into, uh, uh, possible situations of, uh, uh, libertarian vote totals being manipulated down, um, and we're gonna we're we're in the process of looking at it. It does appear that it was just a counting glitch on Google. Um, but if not, if it was some more nefarious thing, uh, then we will certainly find out and be uh, and be because it obviously it's not going to be enough for us to win. But if it's enough for us to have a much higher uh, vote total and percentage than we did, and votes were robbed from us, then we certainly would would like to know that. But in terms of who I think is going to win it, it would take. It would take things much more dramatic than Bush versus Gore in Florida happening in multiple states. Yeah. Uh, so could it happen? It could absolutely happen. Is it likely to happen? I think I think no. I think it's likely that that Joe Biden will be upheld as the. And and what do you think will happen? Like what do you think will happen in a Biden administration that would have been different than a Trump administration? The Republicans will fight him and the Democrats will support him. It's going to be the exact same policies. In terms of what happens, the deficits are going to be massively and exponentially expanded like they were under uh, Trump, like they were under Obama, like they were under Bush, like they were under Clinton, like they were under Bush 
one. Like they were under pretty much every president since the the Federal Reserve was created. Um, it's going to be, uh, you know, the, the 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 de facto tax rate is going to go up. They're going to manipulate the marginal interest, the, the marginal rates between the different income levels. But the reality is all taxes are paid by the consumer because the higher income levels simply just add it to the price of their goods and services and pass it on to the consumer. So the poor people are always paying taxes anyway. It will be more in expansions of existing wars. Uh, it will be further encroachments on your lives, rights, and property under the guise of protecting you. Uh, it will be still continued uh, increases in the cost of living, both from Federal Reserve monetary increase uh, uh, increasing, and uh, and also from uh, and also from you know regulations that drive up the cost of things. Uh, that will make an increasing number of Americans be reliant on government assistance just to be able to make ends meet. It'll just be a steady and incremental worsening. I do not fall into the crowd of people that go, if this person gets elected, it's the end of everything that we care about. It, it's not. It's just an incremental worsening. What I like to focus on is the fact that when we get libertarians elected, the incremental worsening begins to end. And eventually we get an incremental bettering of things where the cost of living goes down because of deregulation, where the number of taxes that the poor are having to pay goes down, where all the barriers and burdens that have been put in front of them that don't allow them to be able to, to thrive and to be able to grow their own businesses because of the cost of the barrier of entry with licensing and zoning and everything else is so high. All that goes away. So we can see more entrepreneurialism among the poor so that they're not reliant on government services, so that they can climb themselves out. And we put the ladders back so they can climb out of the safety net, put an end to the wars and bring the troops home, get the veterans the care they need by ending the, the, the uh, Veterans Administration and just giving them the money directly. These are the things that happen when we get a libertarians elected. Instead of talking about how much worse it's going to be uh, next year and the year after and the year after, start talking about how much better it can be. A politics of actual hope, not through just saying hope over and over again and saying healing over and over again, but actually presenting policies that unite us, presenting policies that heal the problems that have been created by Republicans and Democrats. That's what I would like to focus on. But, you know, in terms of Biden, I think it's just going to continue to get a little worse. And the, the ones saying we have to fight against tyranny and the ones saying we have to support the president are going to switch sides like they always do when this happens. And so uh, you're going to be traveling around and stuff. Why don't you run for Congress or something? I feel like you could win for like a good solid local office. Whereas the presidency is gonna be hard. My skill set lends itself to growing the party as much as possible and bringing people into it. Could I run for a city council or state legislative race or maybe even a congressional race and win? Sure. Could I also help grow the party so that like 30 or 50 other people could win? Yeah. And I think I'd rather focus on that. This is not about me. This is not about my own personal, you know, political uh, aspirations. If it was, I wouldn't be running as a libertarian. Let's be clear. Like if, if, if I were trying to, if this were an end run about self-aggrandizement, I wouldn't be doing it through, you know, a third party. I would be doing it through one of the Republican parties and, and growing my brand, you know, the easy way, right? But I, 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 I can't do that. And, and that's also not what I want to do. I want to take this party and make it into something that actually wins races. And if I'm remembered for that, great. And if I'm, you know, if I'm just someone that's you know, not remembered, but it happens, that's also great. That's my only concern is the legacy I leave behind. Not my name, not what I do personally, not what I'm able to accomplish in terms of wins, what I can do and how I can maximize my abilities to be able to actually help this party become a contending party. Did you have a fun time overall on the oh election? Gosh. I had the most fun this year. I flew on something like 75 flights. Like I, I traveled on a bus for almost a month 
with my wife and one of my best friends and uh, uh, who was my body man and and some of some of my other great friends in the libertarian movement who were you know the part of the advanced planning team i get to work with a, a social media team of like three dozen people that were on my team and a lot of them are staying on as volunteers moving forward i had a media scheduler right like i had someone who would say you got a two o'clock and then you got a five o'clock and meanwhile he's staying on he's staying on as he's uh, you know most of my team is actually staying on as volunteers um but the you know to be able to have that and to to show up uh, you know, to, to, you know, it was one thing to do it online for the first month and a half or so when the lockdowns were making it functionally impossible to do anything. Um, but once I was able to actually go places and you go in hundreds of people are chanting your name and all, you know, like all this stuff. And you're, you know, you're, you're trying not to make this about you personally. You're just saying, no, 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 this is about Liberty. And they're like, yeah, spikes, spikes, spikes. Like, I mean, how can you not love that? Right? Like it's, it, it was, it was an incredible, incredible experience. And the one takeaway I got from it is I want that to become the norm for this party and the people running in it. Because I would see, I would, I would go to events where we had, it was an area where the, you know, the Libertarian Party didn't have much of a presence and there'd be like 50 people there. And I had just been somewhere where there were like 400 or 500 people there. And, and we had reached the limit that this, the city would allow. I go to the next place and there'd be 50 people. I go, wow, this is a much smaller crowd. And the people there are thrilled. They're like, this is the first time we've gotten double digits. And I thought, this is the problem. They're happy with 50. I'm disappointed that it's not the max. We need to change the culture in this party. And we need to grow the party massively so that what I experienced running for vice president is what libertarians experience when they run for city council, county council, state legislator, all the way up and down the ballot, that there is a large and growing grassroots movement uh, and a built-in uh, voter base that they already can tap from without having to struggle and start at zero every single time or start at, you know, 50 or 100 or whatever. See, I feel, I, I feel like you guys could do that because, like, it's no longer about who's the famous politician or who's the celebrity who's running or whatever, because you have social media now. So potentially, you know, anybody could, you know, from their ideas can can blow up and, and explode on the basis of their ideas. Yep. And so I wonder if somehow branding might mean simply ideas coming first and then everybody sort of realizes oh wait he's also a libertarian that's i mean that's essentially what what we did i mean the libertarian branding was in there but i didn't try to say hey vote for me i'm spike cohen i've been in business for 20 plus years that okay great that's wonderful what are you going to do I mean, that was there if people wanted to find out about it, but that's not what I focused on. I focused on, here's what I'm running for. Here are the problems that you're facing. And here is how we're going to fix it. This is how I did in my, you know, when I did cold calling to, to you know, grow my business and, and harpoon big contracts, I would call people. I didn't talk about myself. I talked about their problems, talked about why, why they needed, uh, you know, why they needed web design while they're trying to figure out a reason to hang up on me. Uh, right. You know, I would talk about what their needs were. And by the, you know, few minutes in, they're asking me how much. That's how you reach people is, connect with what their problems are, listen to what their concerns are, and then demonstrate that you've been listening to them, that you understand where they're coming from, that you understand where the problems are, that you understand how we got here, and then you can take them on the journey. Once you've demonstrated that you actually give a crap about them, that you know where they're coming from and what their problems are, and that you know how we got here, then you can take them on the journey for how to get out of it. And that's what I did, you know, multiple times in person to, to small and large groups, online to countless people. And that's how we grow. That's a major way to grow the party. And it's what I plan to continue doing. It's, it's, it's how we go viral. It's how we become, you know, a contending party is with our ideas and with people who are able to present them in a way that connects with everyday Americans. Well, I'm so glad you came on the podcast last time. Joe came on the podcast. I followed the, the journey 
step-by-step. Final last question. Sure. Let's say the role of government is minimally to help people who, for one reason or other, cannot help themselves. Mm -hmm. They're too sick. They're too disabled. There's some problem where they can't help themselves. Mm -hmm. A, is there a role for government for that? Like how... How would you do that in terms of like healthcare or whatever? And I know there's like this sense of voluntary funding, but what if nobody volunteers? Or what if nobody volunteers in that person's region where they do need a little extra help? The fact that people vote to be robbed to provide things that people need is proof that they would voluntarily do it if they're given the option. In fact, it goes even further than that because in most major metro areas, it's illegal to directly help people. It's illegal to feed the homeless. It's illegal to provide shelter to the homeless unless you have tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay for all the licensing fees, the health code fees, all the other fees to be able to legally do it. This is actually something I've been involved with in the past where we would illegally, we would promote going and illegally feeding the homeless and trying to provoke a police response saying, look, we're feeding homeless people. You need to come and arrest us because it's illegal uh, or you need to get rid of this law so that we can feed homeless people. Well, during during the lockdowns, this was the case actually, because this, if you if the if the homeless didn't stay six feet apart I, online at the yep. food bank, mm-hmm. those lines were broken up. Yep, yep. And we saw a major increasing thanks to these lockdowns. We saw a massive increasing of a bunch of stuff that is far more deadly than the virus itself. This virus needs to be taken seriously. I'm I'm let me let me say at the at at best it is anywhere from ten to forty times more deadly than the flu. This is a serious virus and needs to be taken seriously. I just traveled and interacted with tens of thousands of people, mostly outside with social distancing, but we can return to our lives with some basic safety protocols in place and good personal decision making. We do not need the government to tell us whether or not we're essential. And by doing that, even the World Health Organization has said that these policies, these long-term lockdown policies, have done nothing to slow the spread and have only made other things like child malnutrition and homelessness and untreated cancer and untreated depression and untreated chronic health issues, things that have a far higher rate in addiction, far higher rate of of fatality than COVID-19 made these things get exponentially worse. So back to your original question, the role of government is to get rid of the, the, so if if we talk about the need for a social safety net, the biggest role that government can provide is to stop removing the ladders that pe- allow people to climb out of them. When we put those ladders back by getting rid of occupational licensing laws, getting rid of zoning laws that don't make it illegal for you to do business in your own home, uh, getting rid of absurd laws that make it you know, functionally unaffordable for the vast majority of people to actually be able to do their own business legally. When we get rid of that, the vast majority of people are going to be able to grow themselves and their communities out of poverty like we've seen in the past before these types of laws were in existence, right? I'm the descendant of people that came here, you know, uh, penniless Jews who could barely speak the language that were escaping uh, genocide and, and, and political violence. The same type of people that are coming here now, except now when they come here, there are a bunch of barriers and burdens in place. They, it's not as easy for them to be able to provide, to, to do a business. If they try to do a business with all those licenses, the police show up and take everything they own. So they become reliant on those services. So I say the biggest role of government in that is to simply stop making it difficult to climb out of poverty. If there is a minimal need for a safety net after that, which I would argue there probably would not be, between that and, and charity and mutual aid being allowed, 
but if there is one, that can be decided locally. If a local area has more of a poverty issue that they actually need a, you know, a government response to it, they should be able to decide that. We don't need a top-down centrally planned idea for how to deal with the poverty in this country, other than to just remove the barriers and burdens that are creating so much poverty in the first place. And whatever's left that can't be handled through charity and mutual aid can be handled locally far more efficiently and with far more value by either a local government or local coalition of people there or or whatever else. But let that be decided. Let everything else be decided. Education, first response, everything that makes up a civil society, let the people in that community decide how they want it to look. Stop robbing them to pay for these arbitrarily defined and centrally planned crony-friendly policies that do nothing to help them and only just drive up the cost of everything. And so, and and I I know I said the last one was the final one, but it led to another one. (laughs) Privacy. What's the deal with an Ed Snowden or a Julian Assange? Like, what is the notion of like private data? Should there be some data the government doesn't let be private, or you know, how do we control our privacy, or or our own? How do we own our data when all the Facebooks and social media companies of the world use that data to basically make all of their revenues? So there's two different things there. One is people voluntarily entering into a contract with a social media company. Now, most people have not read the terms of service, but the reality is in order for you to use that term of service, you have to agree to the fact that you are the product and that your data is being sold to advertisers. That's what their their revenue model is, right? Um, But then there's government having that. And the difference between that is the difference between you being able to opt out and choose what social media networks you want to use, which again, if we deregulate, would allow you to have even more and better options in that regard, and having a government take everything, every bit of information they can from you and sensibly be able to use it whenever they want to, right? Like if they want to blackmail you in the future, they've got everything they need to be able to do that. You've been walking around with a camera that has, with a phone that has a front and back camera uh, and is recording at all times. Um, that's the difference is is in having a coercive entity be able to have control of that. I would argue that there's nothing, if there's anything the government needs to know, then the American people should be able to know it as well uh, out in the open. And that is why, like, you know, Joe and I talked about that we, if we got elected, that we would pardon Edward Snowden, who was a whistleblower, who uh, demonstrated that the government is blatantly violating our, 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 you know, due process rights, our rights to not be searched without a warrant and to not be spied upon without a warrant. Julian Assange was a journalist who was given third-party information and released it like any journalist would. So these are people that absolutely need to be pardoned and have their uh, prosecutions vacated if they're currently being prosecuted. Not just them, but also uh, Chelsea uh, Manning, Reality Winner, and, and, and many others who were the, in the same thing. But no, I, I think that the government has demonstrated that they can't be trusted with much, and that includes uh, privacy. What if the police needed like data from Google to find a murderer? then they can go to a judge and get a warrant. They can prove that they need it and then get the warrant that they need. All right, well, look, Spike, I, I know I've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you so much once again for coming on the, the podcast. I was a big fan throughout the whole election. Fan's the wrong word, but thank you. Uh, uh, I'm glad you ran. I'm glad you came on. Let us know if you need any help and good luck on the, on the next elections. Absolutely. And folks, just stay tuned to my social media uh, because we're, I'm not going anywhere and we're just getting started. We are going to grow this thing into a formidable movement. Uh, we are going to take the power and the freedom and the money that they have stolen from us for decades and put it back in your hands where it always belonged. And we are just getting started. So stay tuned. Thank you, James. Excellent, Spike. Thanks. <laughs>